You are listening to Power Marketing with Kevin Lee. Kevin and his agency Did It have helped thousands of businesses win through superior marketing, as have his books, articles, speaking engagements, and the eMarketing Association Power Marketing Podcasts. Here's Kevin. My pleasure to be here today with my old friend, Corey Trappoletti, who is uh, an SVP at FIS. Uh, and so to provide context for today's uh, conversation, why don't you sort of explain your role and responsibilities at FIS and anything you've done previously that you think we might we might touch on? Sure. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. So at, at FIS, FIS is a really large fintech company, uh, probably the largest fintech company in the world. Part of the S&P 500, uh, been around for about 50 years and supplies a lot of the technology for banking software, um, capital markets software, banks and traders, as well as the largest merchant payment processing platform in the world, uh, which is actually WorldPay. So FIS really powers something along the lines of 95% of the world's banks, and it touches about $10 trillion in money movement around the world globally. And that's on an annual basis. So it's just really a big company in the fintech ecosystem. Um, prior to being at FIS, I've been here for about two years. Prior to that, I have a whole serial of being entrepreneur into big companies. So I was the CMO for Blue Kai, which we sold to Oracle. Um, then went to go help with the, the launch and building of a company called Voicea, which we built an AI note-taking assistant, which we sold to Cisco. Prior to all that, I was an agency guy, helped sell uh, iTraffic, which is one of the first digital agencies, um, uh, Freestyle Interactive, which we sold to Kara. So I've kind of done a little bit of this and a little bit of that along the way. All right. Well, that's uh, that's quite a history, and I'm sure it all comes in handy when you try to figure out how to uh, allocate uh, human capital and dollar capital for FIS into the marketing ecosystem. Um, one thing I, I had sort of... Uh, a question just uh, popped in as, as I was sort of prepping for the podcast, which was that I know you're really into storytelling and B2B marketers often ignore storytelling. They're like, oh no, we're just we're just a B2B SaaS or B2B service or whatever. And they, they sort of leave out the storytelling. Um, you know, where does storytelling fit into a, a, the B2B marketers toolbox? Mm -hmm. It's a good question because you're right. I think, and one of the things that attracts me to B2B in general is that People don't look at it as a storytelling medium. But the first thing to keep in mind is that the people who are buying B2B products are also everyday consumers. They're buying everyday consumer products. And we know that those folks react well to a story. They react well to a narrative that helps them understand how does this product or this service fit into their day? How does it solve a challenge that they face on a regular basis? And storytelling enables you to do that from a more entertaining perspective versus just listing benefits and hoping that one of those benefits resonates with the audience. So I find, first of all, that just storytelling as a as a tool or a mechanism itself separates you from other B2B companies. Now, what I typically refer to myself as is a data-driven storyteller, which is even more far-fetched for people to understand. But what I believe in is that you should hypothesize a story based on your understanding of the audience or the persona of the audience you're trying to talk to. Then you test it, you put it into the market, you see how it resonates, and you take the positive signals from that testing back in to continue to refine your story. That's data-driven storytelling, and it's actually not a new concept. If you go back to the genesis of storytelling, 
how education, how information has been passed down from generation to generation is always through stories. You can literally go back to cave person days and to today. Everything is about stories and stories change generation to generation. They always change a little bit because they have to be refined to resonate with the audience you're talking to. You can even look at the story of Santa Claus. The concept of Santa Claus has changed a little bit year after year and generation after generation because it has to resonate with the audience. I kind of look at the way that you tell a story from a B2B perspective with that audience of the B2B buyer in a way that resonates with them. So you tailor the story a little bit more to them each time you talk to them. So at some point they raise their hand and say, I'm interested. And data helps you to resonate that story each touch point through the, through the path and through the journey. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sort of wondering when you decide, okay, let's do some B2B storytelling, whether you're doing it for FIS or just a friend of yours says, Hey, help me, help me tell a story for my, my business. Um, do you find that sort of there's a, a journey from the creative process around like, you know, bullet pointing or scripting? Do you feel like visual storyboards are an important part of that? Or is it very different depending on, you know, where you're coming at the creative process? Because some people are very visual. Mm -hmm. And so they can't even articulate the story unless it's storyboarded. Other people are like, oh, no, if it's just scripted out, that's great. So, uh, you know, blank whiteboard, right? And somebody says, okay, we're going to do B2B storytelling. Where do you start? Well, the first place that I would start always is you got to go talk to your customers. You got to ask them, what is it that attracted them to you in the first place? What is it that got them over the hump from just awareness and, and awareness and perception to some sort of consideration or intent? What is it that got them interested in you in the first place? So asking the customers and even asking the prospects who are in that flow still, asking them what made the, the point of epiphany, as I kind of call it, what was the thing that put them over the hump for that? If you get that piece of information, then you start to hypothesize, how do I tell that story? How do I insert that story into a, a longer form narrative over time? And then to your specific question, I do believe in a visual way to display that. I like trying to talk about what's a decision tree look like and at what point do you have those points of epiphany throughout the course of that journey? Because we know that any kind of journey, whether it's a customer journey or a B2B customer journey, they are not linear. People are going to bounce around. They're going to talk to different people. There's different touches. You can't control the journey, but you can control what messages are displayed to them at certain points in the journey. And based on the context of if it's in search, they're probably not doing initial consideration. They've already done some of that. So how do you insert the information to them during a search environment that's going to get them over the hump versus maybe in a software review site area or in a, a community? You want to insert different types of messages in each of those touches. So I think you start early on with that customer asking them the questions. But I do like the sort of visual mapping of the customer journey and at least once again, hypothesizing which stories or which elements of the story are going to resonate when and then testing it yeah that's that's great advice i'm curious if you and your team are going to be out there talking to existing customers anyway in this sort of data gathering and epiphany gathering uh exercise do you sort of ask for the testimonials at the same time and then use those as part of your creation process content creation process yeah that comes up a lot because every b2b marketer is the bane of their existence is trying to get customers to go out and talk about them to get testimonials. So I do think um, there's a quid pro quo. So when we go out to talk to a customer to ask them these kinds of questions, um, there's two things that we're doing right off the bat. We're gonna lead with information that we think is of interest to them. And by the way, it's not a sales pitch. As an example, in the last couple of weeks, I met with three different customers 
And we talked to him about embedded finance and how that is a massive trend in the fintech and financial services space about embedding these types of experiences in remote locations where the customer wants them. So we use that educational context to get in front of our customers, to talk to them, to give them something to think about, something to chew on. Then during that process, we can, we basically get permission to ask them more questions about how they think that resonates in their relationship with us, or how has um, the, the relationship we have with them, how has that progressed over time? And then you might get a testimonial out of that conversation, or it's not that pure asking for the testimonial and saying, why did you choose us? It's just throughout the course of the conversation, they might they might offer up some of that information, offer up some of that point of view. And in doing so, then you ask permission, hey, could I use that in some of our material? So it's not the overt, here's a testimonial that I'd like you to give, please go run this past your legal team because nobody likes that process. But in casual conversation or even the less casual semi-formal conversation, when it comes up, you ask the permission and then you can follow up afterwards to say, okay, here's the documentation that allows us to go use this. But it's not overt as, Will you give this to me? Yes or no. It's more, let's demonstrate the relationship we have together. And if that relationship is strong, then testimonials will naturally come out of it. And then we can use that typically to get over the hump to say, could we build a case study? Could we do something more with you? Because I think to your point, that kind of content is super valuable to insert back into and support the story, the narrative that we're trying to put into the market. If you've got a, a client who's just come up with this testimonial as a result of these conversations and, and you think they're charismatic, but they perhaps are, w- wouldn't necessarily want to give that same testimonial in video form. Um, are there any tricks you've found to sort of get people over that psychological fear of cameras to sort of say, all right, great. We can probably get it past legal. You know, we can, we can probably use it in print in text, et cetera, but boy, this person's actually charismatic. If we, if we could get them on video, this would just be awesome. It'd be a sales tool. It'd be a marketing tool. We can use yeah. it on social, right? Have, have, has there ever been sort of any tricks you've found to sort of getting people past that uh, that fear of the camera? Um, you know, there's, it's a hard one, all right? Some people are just afraid of it. I'm a ham. I kind of like it, as you can tell, because we're sitting here doing this. <laughs> right. um, there are some people that just never get comfortable being in front of the camera. So what you do is you try to minimize the amount of time that their face is on camera, but use them as a voice or a talk over on B-roll footage. You can do a lot with the B-roll footage. We've done a bunch of different things in the past and even now at FIS where we are um, taking the customer through the relationship about how FIS works with them. We're showing the, the, the viewer that story visually with all the different B-roll that we've cut and just have the voiceover be from that customer voice to specifically say, you know, this is something that we learned by working with this company. They don't have to be on the entire um, customer story from video perspective, maybe at the very beginning, at the very end, but use their voice all the way throughout so they feel more comfortable. You know, that is one trick. But the other trick, honestly, is just be in person with them. You know, try to make them feel comfortable. You can make almost anybody feel comfortable if they feel good in the environment that they're in. So, I mean, you do this, you send your crews out to go do videos with your customers. And, you know, there's a trick to just making them feel feel good and feel safe. And also making sure they understand that everything that they say, they have the opportunity to go review later before the world sees it. You can almost always get somebody comfortable in that, in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, to some extent, uh, Zoom and its clones have also, I think, increased people's comfort level yeah. Uh, with with public speaking because they've been sort of forced to watch themselves do it 
and and it's become a, a mandatory replacement for in person and you know the camera is now the other person basically it's it's the other person's on the other side of the camera so i've noticed things loosen up a little bit that doesn't necessarily mean that i can like run out to their location and throw up some lights and a camera and get them yeah. to do the same thing in person but it's it, it's a it's a halfway there substitute i think you know what's actually kind of cool about that and this is a question for you i guess but <laughs> you know, when when people spend time in this environment on zoom looking you watch yourself too and I remember a long time ago, I worked with um, a sales guy and there were days when, and I admit this, I freely admit that I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeve quite often. And I never realized how much you can hear it in someone's voice. And he told me this trick. He's like, put a mirror next to your camera or next to your phone. Cause when you're on the phone, people can tell when you're upset and they can tell when you're angry. So I put a mirror next to my phone and I found that I could see my facial features. And if my facial features were portraying I was angry, I sounded angry on the phone. But now you're in video and you can see yourself all the time. And I do find myself catching myself faster because I know if something's bothering me, it's all over my face and it's all through my voice. So I kind of wonder if you record people in this environment where they can see themselves and check themselves, is that actually easier or um, more comfortable for the people you're referencing than being in person with them? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the individual as to whether that makes them more or less uncomfortable um, yeah. with regards to getting that feedback loop, because I, I I think some people are distracted. And I've even had people tell me that they will like sort of drag the 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 the, the app around on their screen so they can't see themselves, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they prefer not to get that distraction. Uh, and there are actually some uh, platforms that that's the default is not to see yourself because, you know, especially with some of them that are recreating the conference room meeting style, because you yeah. don't see yourself when you're in a conference room, right? So why would you see yourself if you're in a, a virtual conference room? Actually, that Howard Ler Howard Lerman, who you probably know, founded Yext. That's one of his his new uh, platforms that he's working on is something to sort of create a virtual office environment, including conference rooms. And I believe their default is that you don't see yourself. Okay. Uh, you sort of have to manually overwrite it. So it'll be really fascinating to see how that goes as we move closer to the matrix. Yes. <laughs> but in the meantime, I think face-to-face uh, -face meetings are back and they're back in full force. So uh, that, that of course, has an impact on the B2B sales channel. Um, you know, we didn't really discuss that as a question, but, you know, ha has, has, have the sales team been giving you more feedback about sort of the evolution from sort of Zoom-based selling or, or Teams or whatever they use as their chosen platform to, to going back to face-to-face -face meetings? Yeah, I've heard some feedback from salespeople, um, especially as events have made a, a rise back to prominence in the last six months or so. We love being in front of customers. Customers love having you in the room with them. I do think it naturally just goes better when you can realize the person you're talking to is a human being. It's nice to see somebody, but it's much, much better to... Uh, give them a handshake or a fist bump or whatever it is your, your preference is these days. So the salespeople I've talked to have just said that being in front of the customers again is wildly more valuable than it has been for the last couple of years. Um, there's Doing video is a decent substitute, but when it comes to the ask for the, for the deal, when it comes to time to ask for the close, when it comes time to do the follow-ups and really do like a QBR or a monthly business review or a quarterly business review with somebody, you got to do that in person. I just think that the reactions are better. Um, I will tell you this, it's just kind of a tangent to that though. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago during the you know the height of all the pandemic elements, 
people had said that the handshake was going to go away because people were just uncomfortable with it. I found it's back with a vengeance. People are so excited to handshake again. Everybody's <laughs> doing it. Like the fist bump is, is nice. It's cool. It's a little more casual, but the handshake is back, you know, in a real way at this point. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's it's interesting. Um, some some traditions have been around for, you know, a hundred generations probably at this point. And so I don't think they're going away so quickly. Um, yeah. So well, you know, one thing that I, I'm sorry, by the way, but like, yeah, a handshake. I, I, read, I read about this once that the tradition of a handshake was dominance over the other person. You know, people try to have that really strong handshake to show their dominance. I feel like now they're just enthusiastically happy you're back. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know if it was true or not. I think I read something about, you know, because it's your sword hand. Right. It proved that you didn't have a weapon in it. So there's yeah, all sorts of backgrounds to it. Um, but clearly it's evolved over time. Uh, but the, the tradition remains. Um, something that's probably true even more for FIS than some other B2B marketers is, you know, probably there's less and less of the single decision maker. Right. These decisions are being made by committees. There are influencers to that committee, some of whom may have veto power. And so you know, as a marketer supporting those those sales teams, right, where they have a very different um, ecosystem, like of, of, of selling, you know, how has that changed your marketing strategy? What would you recommend to marketers who are sort of B2B marketers? They're realizing like, okay, it's not just a single person that, that has full control over this decision process anymore. Yeah. So I think if you go back to that initial part of the conversation about how it's a nonlinear journey especially in B2B, definitely B2C, but especially in B2B. We do know all the different elements of the touches that are going to be fulfilled upon throughout that journey. Like we know if you're selling SaaS, someone's going to go to a software review site, someone's going to go to an event, someone's going to go to a webinar, someone's going to go to your website. They're going to go read white papers. They're going to look at the analysts. They're going to talk to other people in their community. We know there are certain things that are always going to happen. And we know that certain people are going to have a weight to each of those touches that's different than other people. So a developer might go to their community, they might go to you know, uh, GitHub, they might go to different places like that to get more insight about how other developers use that product versus a C-level exec or even an SVP, VP or director level person, they're gonna go find different pieces of information that are valuable to them. So what you have to do is you have to understand why they go to that context or why they go to that community, what they're looking for, and then insert all the relevant information at every point possible. So that when they come back together, they each have had their own individual needs satisfied from the journey they've taken. Now, it also means that when you have their contact information, when they've become first party contact for you, you have to identify who they are and you've got to deliver the information that's relevant to them. You can't just go out there with a blanket story anymore. The story has to be the sub elements of the story that resonate with you versus you versus you. And so that does make it more difficult. That means that exponentially you've increased the amount of content that you've got to be able to prepare. But I also think that it's it's really good because now you've actually dove more into the product and the service and the solution that you're selling. You understand it better. And it used to be you could kind of get by with just a little bit of information and just pasting it everywhere. But now you have to get down a little bit more granular. You have to understand the solution that you're selling and the challenge and the benefit that you're trying to solve for. So I feel like it forces marketers to better understand the tools and services that they're selling. And I've kind of always maintained throughout every step of my career 
that I should be able to walk into a room and tell the salespeople, hey, sit this one out. I'll be able to take it because I should be able to sell as well or better than any other salesperson. Because if I can't, how can I be sure that I'm marketing it properly? I feel like in this world right now, excuse me about that. Uh, in this world now, the more that I'm able to granularly understand the product I'm selling, the better my marketing to that audience is going to be. Does that, does that help answer the question? Yeah, I, th I think it does. Um, it does bring up a related question, which is that, you know, obviously uh, in channels, uh, which are the hand-raising channels in particular search, right? The person has the problem, they're feeling the pain, they raise their hand, the intent is huge, right? Yep. Whereas in B2B marketing in particular, you've got sort of competitive conquest, right? You've got somebody, they may or may not be happy or at least complacent with their current solution, right? Mm -hmm. But you need to figure out how to go in there and sort of shake, shake things up, but not in such a way that you're the messenger who gets shot for bringing the bad news that they're using an inferior product, right? So you have to walk that fine line, right? But you need to, you the competitive conquest opportunity is, is often a really big one because you know the person has the problems and is solving it a different way. So how does that change your marketing strategy when you sort of feel like you've wrung all the possible demand harvesting out of search, for example, and now you're going to say like, all right, I have to go, I have to stimulate this demand. I have to sort of create awareness of the fact that there's that there's a solution and that people might have a problem that they may not even acknowledge yet. Yeah, it's actually, it's a funny, it's a funny relevant question. Because um, I had this exact conversation with somebody about three weeks ago. And we were talking about, there's all these different marketing strategies out there. One of them usually is, is FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. You're trying to instill the fear that um, you're missing out on an opportunity by going with this partner or this partner. I think FOMO works fine, but there's also the, the old school FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt, <laughs> and which is the idea of you want to drive a wedge between their current choice and the future, to help them think or help them spur the idea that maybe I don't have the right partner that I'm going to need in the long term. Now, the problem with FOMO and the problem with FUD is they both start from a point of being very negative. Hmm. They both start from a negative place. And I don't really think a B2B marketer is going to be successful starting from a negative place, right? To your point, if you're, if you just, if you market negativity, you will shoot the messenger, so to speak, because nobody likes to tell be told that their baby's ugly. Nobody likes to be told that their information is wrong, that all the decisions were incorrect, right? Nobody likes that. So that the, the magic in the B2B component, the magic in the storytelling for a B2B marketer is how do you look at the missing out or the uncertainty and doubt and turn it into a positive? Like, how do you turn that around and make it something where, hey, you know what? Everything you were doing was great with all the information you had at the time, you made the right decision. But let me give you a little bit more information, which might interest you in such a way to revisit that decision now. And this might be too much information for you, Kevin, but <laughs> after going through years of therapy, I can tell you that my therapist once said that a long time ago. He's like, every decision you ever made was the right decision at that time with the information you had. But we always talk about hindsight being 2020 because you have more information later. And that's the magic of the B2B storytelling is how do you just raise that sliver of maybe there's a better decision now that you have more information. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. What I've tr done with some of our B2B clients and B2C clients for that matter, but more B2B is sort of an aspirational hero story, right? Yeah. Because 
if you do in fact solve a problem or solve it better as a result of making the change, you're a hero. It's not yeah. that something was necessarily broken, but you you took the company or your division or whatever to into a new place, and and that makes you the hero, right? And so, what is that? How does that translate into the individual? Well, obviously, it translates into a whole bunch of things within the organization, right? But a lot of the people also internalize that because they realize, like, okay, I'll get a raise, okay, I'll get a promotion. Oh, and my next job when I leave is going to be even better, right? Because I'm going to have that as my LinkedIn profile. You know, KPI increased 237 percent in one year, right? So that's the hero. That's the hero objective because it's a lot easier to sell somebody in being a hero. Uh, than it is, you know, to to seed FOMO or FUD, right? Yeah. So we've just found that's that's a, a been a fun way to message uh, in a B two B context. Yeah, I like that a lot because once again, being a hero is positive. Yeah, you know, threatening somebody that you're going to get fired because you made the wrong decision that's not going to work. I mean, there's that old cliche that in the olden days, right, you never got fired for hiring IBM, right? You would you would bring them in and they would help you figure out the right way to get to the next step without saying what you did before was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that is the art of it. It's like everything that you know that you've done to date was great, but let me help you get greater. Yeah, let's uh, move to a tactical question, right? It, it, every year, email has been dead, but every year in B2B in particular, email is far from dead, right? And so given how foundation, foundational email is to, to B2B marketing, whether you're doing drip campaigns, or just keeping the information in the CRM, um, you know, what other push notifications you think are starting to work in tandem with email uh, now? Uh, because you know, push is great once you're sort of adopting either an ABM strategy or drip strategy in B2B, you know, you, you sort of have to start relying on a little bit more push. So yeah. what have you found is working in addition to email on push notifications? So I, I will I'll agree with you on one quick thing you were saying, right? Email is still very valuable. When I read about people saying email is going to die. It's because most of the time they talk about generational to generational. Younger people don't use email as much as maybe we do. And I find that it has nothing to do with the generation. It has to do with life stage. Because in, in a work environment, email is still very, very dominant. And you're a B2B marketer, you're going to talk to somebody over email. Um, as a consumer, people still talk to you over email. Now, I think that from that push perspective, I hear people use SMS. I'm not personally a fan I know that can be very effective though. So I wouldn't knock it. I just don't personally like using it. But what I found is that these alternative communication methods are really interesting. So um, Slack is, is a great one. I've seen brands create Slack channels with their customers, especially if it's a highly technical customer like a developer. Slack is a great way to push content out and get an immediate response mechanism for it. Um, I've also seen people go and try to use Discord. I haven't figured out the right way to use Discord, but I think <laughs> you Slack, and me both on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think that they're both in the same family. But then I also think social. You know, I think things like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if it survives. Um, you know, even something like a TikTok. Depending on who your audience is, I don't think B two B does a whole lot in TikTok. Some do, some don't. But that's another push notification opportunity because you're putting content in front of the audience where they're spending their time. I happen to spend too much time in email, but other people do, other people don't. So I think if you have that permission to talk to me from a first party to first party perspective, all these channels are available to you. I don't think email is going to go away, but I do think much like in everything else, you have to look at the frequency of it. I can't email my customers four times a week. 
and expect to actually get any kind of value out of it. In the same token, I can't post 15 Instagram pictures every day and expect to get anything out of it. Yeah, I would say I would just add on to the frequency, uh, relevance, <coughs> right? Because the relevance bar is perhaps even more we found important than, than frequency, right? Because yeah. people don't mind a slightly higher frequency if it's hyper relevant to them, right? Sure. Um, and so, but sometimes that's hard for B2B marketers is to retain high relevance uh, at any frequency because you could have a low frequency. And if it's not relevant, that unsubscribe button is one click away. And worse, yeah. the spam button is, is the same distance away. And you, you start getting that clicked, you got a real problem in using sure. email. <laughs> Very true. Uh, one other thing we I, I hear, I think too often when I'm out chatting with prospects in particular on the B2B side is that they're so hyper-focused on customer acquisition that they they fail to remember that like the existing customer you have and like increasing revenue there is, is a marketing opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, do you agree that you, you sort of see too much of that in, in the folks you chat with that they're like hyper-focused on new customer acquisition and they tend to perhaps not give the the level of attention to uh, cross sales and retention that they should. Yeah, I think retention marketing and also adoption marketing are two things that get overlooked. Your retention marketing is obviously just keeping your current customers there and keeping them happy, but adoption is getting to use your product more. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody this week about banks and bank customers and millennials specifically. And I think the data point that I saw was that millennials go check their bank account 22 times a month. Now, in the old days, how many times did you go to the bank, right? You went to the bank maybe three times a month um, and you had a certain value out of that relationship. But millennials go there 22 times a month and they are engaging with different types of services than anybody ever did before. And so the more you're engaging with them, the more they adopt your platform and your solution suite, the better it is, the better your relationship is going to be with them. So that goes beyond just purely retention. It goes into just becoming a part of their day-to-day -day existence. So I agree with you that marketers tend to overlook retention marketing, except during recessions, right? They try to defend their base as much as possible. And going into a recession, a lot of people are talking about retention again. But I do think that they even more overlook adoption. Um, I do think a lot of SaaS companies are pretty decent at doing adoption. Like I will get an email from a Slack or I'll get an email from Trello or I'll get an email from... Um, Zapier and some of those types of companies. And I don't work with any of them, but I use their tools and I will get, you know, ideas from them, inspirations. I will get things that make me look like the hero if I can integrate it into my day. Those types of things I think are great because those are adoption. They're helping me understand new ways to work into my day. And I think more B2B marketers could do that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that probably even overlaps into a lot of B2C, right? Stickiness, customer stickiness which of course translates into LTV, which yeah. is one of the key KPIs that people should be focusing on. Um, I think it, it, there's probably a lot of levers that marketers forget to, to, to pull with regards to you know increasing LTV, increasing stickiness. And then of course, as a byproduct, if you're a believer in net promoter score in that that tends to go up as you do all of these things as well. So that's sort of a, an extra silver lining <laughs> to yeah. that uh, opportunity. So um yeah, th those are great points. Um, do you feel like there are any other mistakes you see B2B marketers making that are sort of no-brainer things that are should be foundational, but perhaps they're just not getting to or, or doing wrong? Yeah, I think when it comes to the um, a mistake a B2B marketer will do, I think that they don't make enough room 
for pure optimization in their storytelling or in the creative development. You know, I, I've seen, and I talk to a bunch of marketers still on a regular basis, but I've seen where, you know, a campaign will go live and they have one piece of creative or one piece of primary content and they'll push to one landing page and then they will just blitz that out into the audience they're trying to talk to. And they don't, they don't take the tactic up front that they should have five or six different pieces of creative or 10 pieces of creative and five to 10 different landing pages and maybe 10 to 12 different pieces of content. So you can mix and match and have different permutations of that because that gives you more information to work with to optimize a campaign, right? You can't put all your eggs in the one basket. And this is the problem I have with overall creativity. It's subjective. And I don't like subjectivity, right? I don't like, I could give you a piece of creative and I give somebody else a piece of creative and you're both going to give me different feedback on it. Oh, I don't like this. I like that. And it's going to be completely different. Um, and if I go to 20 people, I'm going to get 22 different responses. I like to take the subjectivity out of it. And in many cases, I actually like to use the tools at our disposal to automate the delivery of that. Like if I can identify who this person is and what kind of content they've looked at in the past or what kind of behavior they've shown in the past, and then I can hypothesize the right piece of content and the right landing page to give to them, it removes the subjectivity and hopefully works better. But if you really go out with a singular story and a singular piece of content and a singular narrative, there's a lot of people that it's going to go right past them. And if you're doing that as a BB marketer, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people in your target audience that you can convert into an opportunity for you, but you can't do it with one message. You've got to go out there with different messages because certain things are going to resonate. Certain things are going to have that point of epiphany at different moments. And if you go out with one, you might just bypass 50% of the target you wanted to go after, and they're not going to help you. Uh, on the flip side to that, is there a point at which you're creating too much content? So how far is too far down the sort of content creation rabbit hole? Uh, obviously, one size fits all is probably not a prudent strategy. You know, developing creative for different personas or decision makers and, you know, their particular problems they're solving or their personal KPIs could be really useful. But, you know, Beyond a certain point, it probably get becomes cost prohibitive, not just to create, but to test, because you need a yeah. statistically valid sample in each of the times that you test it. Otherwise, you have no idea if it worked or not. So any best uh, thoughts on best practices for that? Like, is, is there a one size fits all or is there sort of a mathematical solution to that? No, I don't think there's a one size fits all. There is a mathematical solution. I will tell you that I have um, one of the tools that I like is I built this relatively, um, relatively good, relatively deep forecasting model for how to go spend dollars for a B2B campaign. And in it, you can surmise the amount of creative and content and copy that you're going to need to work with. But I would say that you kind of hit the nail on the head a minute ago when you talked about the statistically relevant sample size. You basically have to look at what's your sales cycle from a length of time perspective? What size is the audience that you're going to go after? And use those two things to try and figure out what do you estimate for wear out for any individual piece of creative content? Or how many pieces of content do you think anybody can actually swallow before they come to have a, have a conversation with you? So I think there's a bit of a testing mechanism in there too. And this is where the art of it comes back in. Like there is a scientific component that I tend to over-index towards, but there is an art to basically saying, what do we think is too much? Yeah, a related uh, point, I think on the art and science of that is, you know, for B2B marketers who have several, go after several segments from enterprise all the way down, right? Mm -hmm. The 
the more enterprise the client or prospect tends to be, the longer the sales cycle, right? Yeah. And so that data flows in much more slowly, right? And so here you have KPIs coming in off of your marketing campaigns and some of it's maybe looking great and right, you're starting to optimize against it, but you're leaving out the whales, right? Because the yeah. whale data, that's going to be, that'll be there in six months, right? Yeah. So I, I think you have to be really careful, right? As you look for sample sizes and you start to optimize campaigns, you don't pre-optimize and forget about the fact that the, the 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 sales cycle looks different depending on on whether it's a whale and and the whales tend to be like in the 90 10 or 80 20 world they're the ones you really want so you do not want to be ignoring that data sometimes you mm -hmm. have to be patient and and like go back and revisit the data in another six months yeah you know, there's one thing, well and there's one other thing there too Kevin which is that marketing and sales have to be working together and if the two organizations aren't literally intertwined in that double helix type of a model, then you're going to miss out on even more signals because we can follow a lead score all the way through. We can follow somebody through a Salesforce, you know, stage to stage type of a journey, but you need the qualitative feedback from the sales team to try and figure out what piece of content got that customer or prospect over the hump. Mm -hmm. What was it that helped you either qualify or disqualify them earlier in the conversation? Because the more you have that feedback loop, which is not a quantitative feedback loop, you can have all the pull downs you want in Salesforce or Dynamics, and you can have all that piece of information that's fed back into a demand base or a sixth sense, but you got to have that qualitative feedback from the sales team to go back and help you from a content development perspective. If you're not doing that, all this other stuff is going to be great, but you're still going to miss the faster close to your point, the whales, a lot of that is qualitative feedback. Yeah. And what we've seen and what I, what I've seen some other marketers do recently is, you know, having the, the handoff from a traditional campaign to an account-based marketing campaign, that is almost always a qualitative decision based on where are they? What do we feel the opportunity is? Do we think if we go to a pure ABM model, we're going to be able to deliver them faster? If so, let's push them over into that mechanism. Right. Yeah, those are those are excellent points. <clears throat> you mentioned how uh, retention marketing becomes a little bit more in vogue as as people believe a recession is coming. And we have no idea whether 2023 will, will be a recession or not. But, you know, people are already sort of concerned. So, you know, what other strategic changes should B2B marketers make as uh, as they sort of plan for maybe longer sales cycles in a recessionary environment? Um. I don't know, actually. I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that one yet. <laughs> well, the only we do that. Can, we, we, we didn't have to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the only thing I can think of is you want to make sure you have that back and forth again, the educational component with your customers during this period of time. Because if they feel like they are just a stone that's being squeezed for more blood, then they're not going to feel good about it. Right. If you can take the time during a recession to give them more information and not ask for anything, like if you can be patient enough to just invest in the relationship without asking for something out of it, I think you can be more effective coming out of a recession. I think that the best relationships and funny enough, like every company that I've ever been involved in, we built during a recession or an economic downswing. And so I find that the more that you can engage in that education and increasing the strength and the value of that relationship without asking for something, the better you're going to be coming out. I mean, we did that with Blue Kai. We did that in some other some other examples. But just invest in the relationship during this period of time because it will be stronger as a result. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point because people remember and, and you'll get rewarded for that. Uh, so um, as far as uh, next year, what, what has you excited about next year? Is it maybe uh, industry-wide platforms, uh, technologies, you know, disruption? There's a lot of everything going on. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't thought, I haven't sat down to think yet. I haven't been able to put a cap on 22 yet to figure out what 23 is going to look like. <laughs> right. You know, I think it's it's going to be interesting because there's still so much change. Okay. And I had a, a different conversation with somebody the other day. And they were telling me that they did a, re, uh, a research piece against a lot of senior level marketers and marketers and even just business owners are tired of disruption. They are tired of the rate of change. I mean, how much change have we dealt with the last three years, four years, the last 10 years, 15 years, the last 25 plus years? I mean, everything always seems like it's the biggest change ever. Um, and it used to be that those changes happened every seven years or so. Now that felt like they're more like every three to five years some this big disruption comes into the market. So we're all kind of tired. That being said, we're going into another year with more change. And coming out of the pandemic and going into a recession is going to be very, very interesting navigated waters to try and navigate. So I honestly think that I'm looking forward to next year as an opportunity to take one small breath and absorb all the stuff that we just learned. Absorb and start to process this you know, the, 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 the push and pull of people trying to push return to work with people wanting to work from home, um, push the, the push away from, say, cash and physical currency to digital payments and all that kind of stuff. I think I want to understand a little bit more about how these types of embedded experiences will operate versus more traditional you know, go to an individual retailer, go to an individual company for a suite of services. I want to understand how people are going to adopt all these and how much they're going to stick. And I think if we can do that for a year, it would be kind of nice. It would be kind of nice and not be disrupted for one year. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But obviously, as, as venture capital money uh, becomes tight and, and money becomes tighter in general with rising interest rates, uh, there'll be less people out there building shiny objects to distract us from the yeah. stuff that we're still trying to figure out how to optimize around that works already, that we know works. Yeah. So that we don't have to sort of make that difficult choice between the shiny object and the tried and true uh, parts of our, our marketing strategies and channels that, that work. So yeah, perhaps uh, that, that'll be a byproduct of the sort of capital crunch that hits the, the tech community, the ad tech, the martech community, and the publishing community. So uh, I, I agree. It'll be it'll be great to take a deep breath and you know figure out how to squeeze more juice out of the lemons we already have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a good another good analogy is that I like music, and um, one of the artists that I've always kind of liked is Ryan Adams. Ryan Adams put out something like six records in the last three months. I can't tell you if any of them are any good. It's too much. It's too much information. It's too many records all at the same time. The Chili Peppers put out two records in the last six months, and you know, that's still, it's a lot of music to try and digest, especially when I don't have the time that I used to, to sit down and listen to music. Whereas if you put out a record every couple of years, you see what Taylor Swift does. You know, she puts out a record every couple of years, people have time to digest it and just analyze it and figure it all out. There's something to be said for spacing out some of the disruption, spacing it out a little bit. Yep. Yep. And uh, that way Ticketmaster can ho hold their act together. <laughs> no, I, I, I go back to the in Gen X, Pearl Jam was fighting Ticketmaster, and it was it was not cool back then, but now it's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs>
Well, on that note, Corey, thanks so much for joining me to discuss uh, marketing, marketing strategy, particularly the B2B side, which I think uh, not a lot of folks delve into as deeply as you do. So thanks for sharing your, your wisdom there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And I really do appreciate it, Kevin. Keep up the good stuff. <laughs> Will do. Thanks. Kevin Lee's Power Marketing is available on all your favorite podcast networks. Kevin loves helping businesses excel at marketing. Having marketing challenges? Just like Santa in the Miracle on 34th Street. If Kevin can't help you, he'll know someone who can. Find him on LinkedIn, subscribe, or follow.